Bill and Bob are standing outside their church building. Bill is wearing nothing but a pair of boxer shorts and a scraggly tie. Nothing else. Bob has got his tidy whities and a singlet. Nothing else. And they're both standing there with this look of gobsmacked awe on their faces. And Bill says to Bob, that was the most compelling sermon on giving that I've ever heard. (laughs) I don't know if my sermon will be as compelling. I've got to need God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your word, the, the, the Holy Scriptures. We pray that you'd help us to concentrate, to set aside any hindrances or distractions and that we would uh, both tremble at and rejoice at your word and on account of hearing it, become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, when it comes to the topic of giving, the reputation that the church has can be a bit of a mixed bag. On the negative side, there's the stigma about the church that it's essentially a big money-grubbing institution. One of my favourite singer-songwriters, a guy named Stephen Wilson from the band Porcupine Tree, which none of you have heard of, captures this idea with a scathing simplicity in his song Prodigal, which has the verse, I tried to find myself a better way. I got religion, but I went astray. They took my money. And I lost my faith. Scathing simplicity. Cool song. Cool band, Porcupine Tree, by the way. On the positive side, though, when the Salvos, for those of us old enough to remember, used to do their charitable appeals and went around doing their collections, they would get praised from door to door. And by the way, our Gledswood Hills congregation run this ministry called Toys and Tucker uh, around Christmas time that some people seem almost desperate to want to contribute towards. Occasionally, you can hear a testimony of someone who, on account of coming to faith in Jesus, finally gets their finances in order because they actually break their gambling addiction. For Christians like us who live in a free market economy where there can be what we at least perceive as a really large disparity between our incomes, on the negative side, we can feel a bit uncomfortable about the frequency with which Uh, the topic of giving gets raised at church. But on the positive, as people who know and love the Lord Jesus and his word, we're comforted by the fact that there must be something necessary and helpful about coming to the topic of giving frequently because, well, Jesus himself constantly brought up the topic of money in his preaching. But of course, church and experience is, is one thing, but the word of God is another. The scriptures are written only ever for our good and they stand over church and over our experience. And the fact that here in 2 Corinthians, the word of God gives two whole chapters whereby the topic of giving is the major theme means we actually have the perfect opportunity tonight to, I guess, kind of set the record straight on how it is that Christians are to approach and think about the topic of generosity, of giving. So, without further ado, let's dive into this part of God's Word together. After urging the Corinthians to live in accordance with the true apostolic gospel by unyoking themselves from false teachers and from, as we saw last week, by making sure they had relational connectedness that allows for mutual strengthening and encouraging. Paul now teaches these Corinthians about how 
giving is also a natural outworking of the gospel. He begins by referring to the practice of other churches. And so, as you saw, we had, as you heard, verse 1, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Geographically, the Macedonian churches are the neighbours to the Corinthians. You've got a sort of almost island-ish thing of Achaia there in the south, which I hope yep, you can see, uh, where Corinth was situated. And the big smoke up north is, of course, the region of Macedonia, where there was a bunch of other churches that the Apostle Paul had planted. What is it about those Macedonian churches that Paul wants the Corinthians to know about? Well, of course, we read from the next verse, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. That last sentence there, another way of saying is they they turned to Christ, gave themselves to the Lord, and as God intended, they embraced the true apostolic gospel. They turned to us, which the Corinthians are a little bit on the edge for. And of course, doing that stands behind the reason that they were therefore eager to give generously. Now, we often overlook this, but the Lord's People, and if you've got an older translation, it might say the saints. The Lord's people actually means the original Jewish church in Jerusalem, from where the gospel is now spread out all over the Mediterranean world. And clearly, Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that these Macedonians have been generous in giving tribute to Israel's God by providing for his original church from whom they've received the gospel and their sound doctrine. So that's the what of the Macedonian churches. But why does Paul want the Corinthians to know about them and what they've done? Well, it's because he, of course, wants them to do the same thing. And even to do so, get this, with the challenge of being compared to the Macedonians. And so from verse 6, so we urge Titus, just as he had early made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, the Macedonians. For Paul, seeing the predominantly Gentile, that is non-Jewish churches of Macedonia, bring their tributes to Israel's God, that would have been a brilliantly reassuring sign of their theological orthodoxy. And if it can happen with them, especially amidst their poverty, well then surely it can also happen with the churches of Achaia, including Corinth. 
Hence, Paul shamelessly uses a comparison, perhaps even a sense of competition to urge the Corinthians to make good on their former commitment to partnering with the Jewish church that they've benefited spiritually from. See, you haven't benefited spiritually from those super apostles who demand payment. Don't give them your money. You've benefited from the true apostolic church and the poor in Jerusalem. Give your contribution to them. Why can Paul be so shamelessly strong in his urging to get these Corinthians to give generously to those who gave them the apostolic gospel? Well, first of all, put simply, anyone who has come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour has already, by implication, said that they love the idea of sacrificial giving. Verse 9, for or because, here's the reason, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see, the gospel itself provides us with the principle that excelling in generous giving must be a good thing. Left to our own devices, every single one of us actually has a tremendous debt that we are thoroughly incapable of ever paying. We've all lived in smug defiance of the God who gives us every breath that we're currently breathing. And our declaration of independence from him, the Bible calls it sin, has rendered us thoroughly incapable of being reconciled to God. And that sad situation will extend into eternity. But our Lord Jesus, who in his very being and nature has equality with God, he did not hold on to his infinite riches, but voluntarily lowered himself in order to endure the hell of the cross in the place of individual sinners like you and like me. So, For those to whom God has kindly granted the gift of repentance and trust in Jesus, we've been freed from our unpayable debt and we stand now to benefit for all eternity. We cannot help, therefore, but love the notion of giving sacrificially to benefit others. The gospel itself, according to Paul, let alone basic logic, is what motivates Christians to give. The gospel is what motivates Christian generosity. These Corinthians that Paul's writing to, they had rightly in the past said that they'd like to do just that. We want to give give this gift to the, the Jerusalem church. So Paul obviously says, well, what's best for them is that they make good on that commitment. So verse 10, and here is my judgment about what is best for you In this matter, last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched, and I would add even maybe proved, by your completion of it according to your means. What's best for this church is that they make good on their pledge to give. And the making of that pledge was actually far more important than the amount that would eventually be given. And that's because it's the 
willingness to give that shows that these Corinthians are theologically sound and thoroughly converted. So Paul straight away adds that little teaching point there in verse 12 where he says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And friends, this should not surprise us in the slightest because a characteristic feature of the new covenant that we see over and over again is that it reminds us that God is concerned not so much with the outward religious activity, but with the genuine attitude of the heart. It's the willingness to give generously that shows that the heart has been transformed by the one who, though he was rich, gave his life for us. For the person with the very small income who only gives, say, 5% of what they earn, it could easily be the case that by their actions, they're actually shown to be far more willing to give generously than the multimillionaire who even gives up to 50% of what they earn. And that's basically what we learned from uh, that little lesson Jesus gave of the observation of the widow with the two copper coins, which I'm going to assume that most of us are probably familiar with. Jesus and the two copper coins? Yeah, got it, good. If not, ask me afterwards, we'll read it together. And indeed, when it comes to the consideration of the amount, how much you're going to give, equality, or I think a much better word for it, especially in our day and age, fairness is what needs to come into play. Verse 13, our desire... It's not that others may be relieved why you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Same word in the original language can be translated fairness. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, perhaps at a later date, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, fairness. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little, which is the perfect little Old Testament quote to add here because of course he's talking about what happened with the Israelites during the period of the exodus when uh, they needed to eat God supplied them what did he supply them with what was the food manna does anyone know what the word actually means what is it it? yeah what are you having for breakfast what is it okay can you have some what is it and give some to your brother as well and I'll have some what is it as well it's just ridiculous now (laughs) God miraculously provided that food in the wilderness it's all his and they called it manna, and people collected it according to the size of their families. The reality is that any money, any possessions that you have that I have is actually all from God's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he wants us to give in such a way that that the givers don't get too poor and the receivers don't get too rich. He, He wants it to be done with quality. He's the God of justice. But then things start to get a little bit more intense In the next section from verse 16, Paul teaches that eager and generous giving is, to use his own phrase, the proof of your love, presumably of your love for Jesus and for his chosen people, love for God and neighbour. Now, before he gets there in verses 16 to 23 and also in 9 verse 3, Paul explains that his co-worker Titus is going to visit Corinth ahead of him in order to make sure that their offering is completed before Paul arrives. There'll be two other gospel workers accompanying Titus, one of whom serves as a representative from the Jerusalem church 
and one of whom is well known by many of the churches that presumably have already had their contributions successfully given to Jerusalem. The reason that's done, of course, is to make sure that money or treasure or whatever it is, is handled in a way that is completely above reproach. Which I'm really proud to say is, as far as I can tell, also an excellent feature of our Anglican churches in general. As far as I know, also of our church in particular. I personally have nothing to do with handling money at our church because A, I'm rightly not allowed and B, I'm thoroughly incompetent. So even if I was allowed, it would be a disaster. But even I can see that the work of the wardens, the parish council, Peter Graham in particular, who some of you might not even know, he's at our morning congregation. Who knows Peter Graham? Yeah, good. He's got this seedy mow at the moment. You've got to bag him out when he... Um, it's really top-notch stuff, the way they handle our church and our finances. I, I've actually got complete confidence that the money that Stacey and I give to our church is managed really well and used really well in a way that's thoroughly above reproach. But how does Paul instruct the Corinthians to respond to these men who will be managing the gift? Here's the crux, verse 24. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you and so that the churches can see it. How does this go with our Western polite sensibilities? I'm going to compare you and create a bit of competition, show that you love Jesus and neighbour by giving your money and let the other churches see that you're doing it. I take it that the generous giving is actually proof of their love for Jesus and the church of his apostles who gave them the gospel. Broadly speaking, it's tangible proof of love for God and neighbour and something that, again, is, I think, a natural outworking of the apostolic gospel. Maybe something that grates our polite sensibilities, but that's what the Bible teaches. And Paul says it's something that he takes pride in and something he wants the other churches to see, presumably because it will serve as an encouragement to them. Initially, this seems, like I said, a bit counterintuitive and uncomfortable, it does to me, but if I were to apply Paul's approach directly here to us, here and now, well, then I'd be forced to conclude that it's right to be proud of the fact that other churches know that there are such faithful and sacrificial givers here at Grace Anglican Church that as a parish we employ three full-time and four part-time and also one very valuable volunteer staff, even though we're not a super big church. In case you didn't know this, our ministry is funded pretty much entirely by our members, by us. And the fact that we are where we are is, under God, really a credit to the faithful and generous givers of our church. I'm personally deeply thankful for the faithful givers here, as I know the other staff certainly are as well. But the way I see it, that's basically an irrelevance. When Paul says he takes pride in something, he does so as the chosen ambassador for Jesus himself, the head of the church. 
So I'm actually happy to declare with great authority that Jesus is honoured by our ongoing sacrificial faithful giving. That's the rap that really counts. But as Paul is unashamed to urge the church towards sacrificial and generous giving on the basis of the gospel itself, so I'm also compelled by the word to suggest that if you are a follower of Jesus, but you don't yet have a willingness to give to gospel ministry, as would be shown by you actually doing it, then either you've got some serious growth in Christian maturity to do, or you've actually got some repenting to do. I'm fairly sure that that's got to be the case for at least some of us uh, who are here. Uh, earlier this uh, week, I asked Peter, Peter and Graham, for an analysis of our giving here at Grace and Lincoln Church at night. It's all totally anonymous, of course. Peter helpfully categorises givers into these things he calls EGUs, that's an electronic giving unit. That's very uh, accountanty speak. A single person living, living by themselves who gives to, to church will be one EGU. Uh, Stacy and I are two people, obviously, yet we're one EGU because we have one lot of giving from, from one account. It's, so you could think of an EGU like as a household comprised of one or more people who give. I learned that our congregation currently has 39 AGUs, uh, which is actually 74% of our membership. And by currently, I mean, or Peter means, that they've given uh, at least once sometime since the start of this year, since the start of 2022. Given our number in our households, there are actually potentially 50 AGUs uh, at, uh, at our church. And that means that 26% of people who say that Grace Anglican Church at night is their church, are currently not giving and perhaps have not yet started giving to gospel ministry at their church. Um, proportionately, there are more EGUs here at night church than there are in our other two congregations. And again, channeling Paul here, I think I can rightly say I take pride in this congregation for its generosity in comparing it to our other two churches. Nonetheless, for those of you not yet giving, it is actually an important part of your growth in godliness. If one of the reasons, and this could rightly legit be the case, that you're not yet giving to gospel ministry of your church is because you don't know how, or you're only just learning that's a thing because you're, you know, 14 years old or something. Praise God, you're going to find out. Uh, in a, a little while, I'm actually going to point you to a resource that I think is absolutely wonderful and brilliant, so just, just stay tuned if that's you. Uh, but for those who do know they should be giving, I can't help but wonder precisely because I myself am so guilty of this, is if one of the big reasons that we're not, or that some Christians aren't proving that they're willing to give by actually doing it, is actually really just for lack of thoughtfulness and planning. Paul himself had that same thought about the church in Corinth, which is why he addresses that from the start of chapter 9. In verse 1 he writes, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, 
And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians. We boast to another congregation how good these guys are. Telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one grudgingly given. So in Paul's own mind, we must conclude, this has to be the case, that it's possible for people to be excelling in a number of areas of gospel living and even be very willing to give on the basis that they've benefited from Jesus' sacrifice and yet still need to have people help them get prepared to give in accordance with their own desire to do so. To put it simply, gospel giving actually requires thought and planning. To put thought into how you use the money God has entrusted with you is actually in itself an act of thankful obedience for your salvation. So it could well be that one of the reasons you've not yet joyfully submitted yourself to liberating obedience to Jesus in this particular area of your life is because you're not actually that thoughtful or responsible with your money, full stop. And a way to remedy that could get someone else to help you, just like we saw last week. It could be a real benefit, one of the benefits of being relationally connected to your church community. Put up your hand if you're a person who creates a household budget. Keep, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. For all the people that who are not in the same household as one of these people with their hands up, who don't put sufficient thought into your finances, these are your brothers and sisters who you can go and ask help from to do it. Hands down, in my case, I did one better. I just married the person who's really good at doing it, right? So, And speaking of which, one of the most important lessons about preaching uh, that we rightly get drilled into us from more theological colleges is you've got to make sure you're applying the word of God to yourself first. And so the other day, Thursday it was, before I preached this sermon, uh, I begrudgingly put a note in my shared calendar with Stacey to review our giving. It said, at home date, including brief money discussion, uh, a la Barefoot Investor Guy, that's a guy she reads, Lord help me. Um, which was meant as an idiomatic expression as much as a genuine prayer. Um, thankfully... The date did go okay. I can think. I, I don't know how you can put the word date and financial discussion in the same. She was happy. She, oh yeah, no worries. She was already right. <laughs> Actually, we decided on the basis of that to leave our monthly giving the same, but to increase our yearly average by setting aside a percentage of a lump sum payment that we get uh, from family tax benefit at the end of uh, financial year. Now that doesn't matter to you, but the the idea is right. We sat down and we did some planning and we thought about it. The last thing that Paul draws our attention to is the positive result 
of gospel giving. The return for your investment is actually worth far more than the investment itself. For gospel giving results in righteousness and strengthening both the individual and the church. The section begins, verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So again, if you're unprepared to make good on your pledge, you might find yourself giving reluctantly, whereas if you've put thought and planning into it, you can be the cheerful giver that God loves. And such giving will be sowing generously and will thus reap a generous reward. What is the reward? Well, of course, that's where he immediately goes next. Verse 8, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It's not... Your bank account will miraculously get higher and higher because you invested. It's you will abound in every good work. Verse 9, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your food. No, righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God it's easy to find preaching that seems to insist that the motivation for godliness is getting rich it's easy it's called the prosperity gospel it's everywhere do this thing and later on you'll reap a great reward and you become a rich person it's ridiculous. Remember what Jesus said in the greatest sermon ever preached? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for material gain, but for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is a dreadful tragedy that you can find preachers who teach that giving abundantly means you'll receive financial and material blessing as a direct result. That sounds far more like the kingdoms of this world rather than the kingdom of heaven. Paul's teaching here makes it plain that the return for gospel giving is righteousness and, as we'll see in the final verses, strengthening in the faith, both for yourself and others. You want to be progressing in your Christian maturity? You want to be strengthened in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, then it makes sense for you to become a thought-out gospel giver. And of course, when any group of God's people grow in their righteousness and maturity, it can't help but give a great morale boost to other groups of God's people. So, verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. I'll say that again. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God 
for his indescribable gift, which would be the kind of thing that people might say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, just like Paul says of the Macedonians. Guys, I'll show you how this works with a real-life example here and now. There's some person within our parish, in one of our three congregations, who gives a small and different amount each week. It's all anonymous. I don't know the real amounts, but it's kind of like fourteen ninety-two this week and $8.37 next week and $17.24 the following week, etc. Just like that. I don't know the actual amounts. I have no idea who the person is, but my best guess is that it's some person, perhaps a young person, who gets shift work, maybe flipping burgers or babysitting or, or selling donuts. I don't know, doing something like that. And each pay period, they're working out some percentage of what they're being paid. Maybe 10%, maybe 2%, maybe... I don't know. But they work that out and then they give that portion towards the ministry of their church. Can you see how just knowing that kind of makes your heart go out to them and you want to thank God for the way that he's working in this person's life, I assume this boy or girl's life? The amount that they give is not the main game. It's their faithfulness, their willingness, their generosity that gives great honour to Christ and great encouragement to us, to me. Some people's financial situation means that the amount they give should be very small. But all of us who know the Lord, who for our sakes became poor, should have a great willingness to give, as should be demonstrated by us doing so. Put that all together. Gospel giving is motivated by the gospel itself. It is a tangible proof of love for God and neighbour. It requires thought and planning and it results in righteousness and strengthening. By way of implication, you'll realise obviously Paul is speaking to a whole group of people. Now he does give individual address. You should do this means each one of you, right? Uh, But he's speaking to a whole bunch of people, and there's actually something right and appropriate about that. Imagine he said, you should give this much and you should give it. Or imagine without giving, we said, this person gave this much. That That would be an epic fail and a disaster. It would dishonour Christ. uh, We, time to time, although I think it's been a while since we've had this at Night Church, we, time to time, on the weekly news uh, letters, have a little graph about how a budget's going. Anyone seen one of those? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Uh, Yeah, well, there's one. We had one at Morning Church this morning, right? Um, And there's something really good about that. I think you need to look at that and go, what's my part in this for my congregation and take pride in the way that we're doing things. Um, But more importantly, and this is the thing I've really, really been looking for and waiting to, this is is a way better, I guess, kind of application that I could possibly give, is we've got this thing that some genius put together called Guidelines for Giving. And I read through it a couple of weeks ago and I forgot to get my paper copy up here with me now, which is a bit silly, but I'll tell you what's in it, right? It, it, there might be, I'll tell you what, someone can run, Kezi can do it, she can run, the, just to show you, look, they're at the back table and she's going to pick one up. You can do this, especially if you're one of those unplanned people. And this thing is absolute gold. It goes through all the reasons for our giving, all the basic principles. It's very well produced and very well written. And it even gives you this thing for 
for dummies like me that says, step one, calculating how much to give. The first practical step is to work out how much money you have to start with, which I didn't know, by the way. I had to sit down with Stacey and said, what do we get paid? The table below is a simple way to do that. It's based on the amount of income you actually get the benefit of, your after-tax salary, I, I do know what that is, along with other income or benefits you receive. And you write it down there. It says, prayerfully consider how much you would like to set aside. It, it does the work for you, right? If you haven't done it, or you want to even learn to sort of think in a godly way about your giving, and especially if you've fallen asleep in the last 10 or 15 minutes... <laughs> Just get this. And you know what? I know that our, um, our handout is threatening to just become entirely QR code. So <laughs> I understand that. But we've even got a guidelines for giving QR code down the bottom, right? There's five QR Yeah, yeah. It's the way of the future, right? <laughs> I said when I preached this same sermon at our morning at, at Harrington Park the other Sunday that when I did have that awkward date with my wife about it, that I'd bring this with me. And I did. And it was great. And we did. We didn't actually use it. We used the principles of it. Anyway, get this thing. It's better than anything I could give you in terms of application. Let me conclude our time in prayer. And it will be up to Sam as to whether or not we have question time. And how I feel. Uh, Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, though uh, in all essence and being is fully God, that he did not hold on to his infinite riches, but he made himself uh, low and gentle and took on the form, uh, took on uh, humanity and even the form of a slave, and even a slave who gave his life on the cross to pay for our smug defiance and rebellion against you. Thank you that on account of his poverty, we have been made rich. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we absolutely love and delight in the notion of sacrificial giving, and we pray that by the power of your Spirit at work within us, uh, that that willingness and that love uh, would be demonstrated uh, by our thoughtful planning uh, and our, our activity when it comes to giving. Heavenly Father, we recognise that all good gifts ultimately come for you, from you. And uh, Father, we thank you for uh, those who are giving sacrificially in our congregations and for the great joy and wonder it is to know that uh, yeah, they've been so transformed by the gospel and that's, that's something they do. Uh, Father, we pray that um, we will give in such a way that givers aren't put into poverty and receivers aren't put into to riches, uh, but there's fairness and, and equality. Uh, please so characterise our church in accordance uh, with Paul's teaching here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.